0: This podcast was produced on Sunday, May 28th at 2.32 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: Um, you think I'm going to win?
0: I think you have yeah. a chance of winning.
1: I think I have a good chance of winning.
0: Andrew Shear is now the new Conservative Party leader. But before he bested Maxime Bernier on Saturday, he sat down with me for coffee and an interview about his experience and his policies.
1: Andrew Shear, Member of Parliament for Regina Capel, leadership candidate, born in 1979. Really good at dropping Simpsons references into public speeches.
0: Perfect. This is a special edition of Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. I'm Althea Raj. Andrew Shearer, thank you very much for joining us. Um, let me begin by asking you why you want to be leader of the Conservative Party.
1: Well, I really do believe that I can keep our caucus united and that I have the ability to bring our Conservative message to our broader audience of Canadians. I believe that I can articulate the aspirational side of how Conservative policies actually lift people out of poverty, create prosperity for all Canadians, and improve our quality of life. So I think I'm, I'm best suited to be able to Take that, that conservative message that our base supports and 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 rallies behind, but then bring that out to a, a larger section of the elect, of, of the electorate.
0: You were born in Ottawa. Born in
1: Ottawa, and I now born live in, and raised in Ottawa. Born and raised, yeah. Went to Immaculate High School and then University of Ottawa, and uh, now I have a seat in Saskatchewan. I raising my family there, and our home is in Regina. So east meets west. I've I'm young. I've been an MP since 2004 and held a very significant post, uh, a position with executive level of authority uh, in in terms of being Speaker of the House of Commons. And I really do believe that I can keep every kind of Conservative united and focused on winning uh, the next election. There's a heck of a lot of Canadians that didn't vote for us last time, don't intuitively despise the Liberal government. And we have to give them a reason to vote Conservative. We have to go beyond that. We have to, and I'm not suggesting changing what our positions are, but we have to find a way to take our Conservative policies and make sure that they're reaching a broader audience of Canadians. And so that's what my advantage is in this leadership campaign. As other candidates kind of try to make differentiation on, on certain aspects of policy or style, I'm the one at the end of every debate saying, look, we have to think about how do we get our neighbour... You know, like my mo- I always use the mother-in-law test, you know like my mother-in-law doesn't instinctively despise everything the Liberal government does, but when I can talk to her and say, like this is what the damage it's doing and that then I can get her to agree with me. We have to be able to do that. We have to get uh, our friends and family that that aren't conservative but are open to voting conservative a reason to vote for us next time. Winning the next election will not be who can criticize Justin Trudeau the loudest or the most bombastic way. Um, we we, we ran against Justin Trudeau in, in in 2015. We spent a lot of money attacking him and, and attacking the Liberals, and we got 30% of the vote. So the lesson I've learned from the last election is not that we have to change our policies, because I got very good feedback, and people appreciated the tax cuts. They liked the fact that we balanced the budget. They appreciated our foreign policy that had a principled drive to it and standing up for what's right around the world. But we have to find a way to keep all that, but then go from 30% to... beyond. And we're not going to do that just by reminding people how much we don't like Justin Trudeau. We have to have something on the flip side of that.
0: I looked at your website. And in terms of policy offerings, when you talk about things on the flip side, and I don't know if that's where you were going, because I suspect that you want to tell me how charming you are. Um, But you're very humble. So maybe you don't. But um, you definitely, you know, you don't have a Harper-esque approach to politics, I think. You know, you could very well be voted the most collegial caucus MP, and your support in caucus probably demonstrates that. Um, But when it comes to policy, there isn't that much out there that you are putting forward to Canadians. Basically, you are, like everybody else, opposed to a carbon tax. Um, you want to balance the books in two years which is a pledge that basically the sort of young conservatives have forced upon all of you. Um, I have no idea how you would balance the books in two years, do you?
1: Well, it keeps getting worse because every budget that the Liberals <laughs> bring in means there's going to be more work to do. Uh, but I think it's important to have an ambitious target. I, I I saw what happened when we went into deficit for the recession and we had a plan to get back to balanced budget. If you don't give the bureaucracy, if you don't give the departments, if you don't give public servants a target, an ambitious target, government growth is organic. The there's there's very I've never had a meeting with a government lobbyist, uh, a gr person, or uh, who have brought an idea to spend less money. Um, I've never had uh, a meeting with a deputy minister or an ADM that can say, you know, I found a way that we could (laughs) save 40, 50 million dollars. Uh, The the pressure on increased spending is is organic and, and constant. So I believe the two year pledge is important. It's not just symbolic, it's something that we have to drive towards. And, uh, and but there's some low-hanging fruit. you know Justin Trudeau has announced a heck of a lot of new spending that's not even taking place in Canada, spending it around the world on some of his his pet projects. So I think that there's some some low-hanging fruit that we'll be able to go after to very quickly start getting back to balanced budget.
0: But you view that two-year pledge as like an aspirational goal rather than like a no, I didn't promise. sign up to
1: it just because it's aspirational. I think we can do it. but I think the danger that other candidates who say well, you never make it in two years, yeah, yeah with that attitude we won't. And, uh, and you know what with that attitude we won't make it in five years either if, if you don't have if we don't win in 20 if we win in 2019 if we don't send a strong message to the civil service to to any industry that lobbies government for money uh, that look our our number one priority is balancing the budget uh, then we won't balance the budget it will be that much harder and there's examples at the provincial levels where you know it's those those targets get punted down down the road but the key th- the key for us is not necessarily you know whose plan to get back to balanced budget is more you know, w- focused on the taxing side or the spending side or you know, which departments, which candidate would focus on. It's how do we get Canadians to care about balanced budgets? That's the trick because we ran on balanced budgets in the last election and we didn't win. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why we didn't win. So I'm, I'm not saying that balanced budgets are, aren't important, but how do we get the 70% of Canadians that didn't vote for us to care about these massive deficits? Why should a 22-year-old care that there's a 30 billion dollar deficit? Why should a 45-year-old, you know, a f- family of four care about, you know, or mom or dad? Why should they care about uh, 30 billion dollar deficit? That's I don't think we did a very good job of laying out the argument. We assume that people were upset by deficits or pleased by balanced budgets, and you know, Brad Wall always says in Saskatchewan that conservatives finish the sentence too early and we say we're going to balance the budget and that's where we put the period. I think we'll be on that and say, we're going to balance the budget because right now we're borrowing for my kid's future or we're adding to the debt load, which means more money going to interest payments to banks and bondholders. That's why we're getting back to balance budgets so that we can lower taxes. So that's not spending. why
0: you lost the election. You didn't lose the election because Canadians were upset that you balanced the books.
1: Well, they obviously didn't care enough about it, right? Really? You like, don't think
0: that Canadians were just wanted a change of government after 10 years, they thought that the conservative party had become a sort of mean party. They didn't understand why you were focused on barbaric cultural tip lines or why you would want to ban women who wear the niqab from working in the public service when there are no women who work in the public service who wear a niqab.
1: I guess my point is that if deficits and balanced budgets were the primary concern for Canadians, then we would have won the last election. So its n- it was not as important to them as some of the issues that we had around tone and, and perception and image. So in that respect, yes, there are a lot of reasons why we lost the last election that had nothing to do with policy. But clearly... the the majority of Canadian voters did not attach enough of an importance to balanced budgets. Hmm. Because if they did, despite those challenges that we had, we would have won because that would have been more important to them than a a perception or an image that we had developed.
0: Um, I want to go through some of your policy Hmm. on your website. And maybe there is more than what's on your website, but... um, the so one thing I thought was really interesting, which I think distinguishes you from the other candidates, is this tax credit for Canadians who send their children to private schools, independent schools, no. or who homeschool your children. You send your kids I to do. private yeah. school. Um, Regina Christian School. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is important? Uh,
1: well, yeah, and if I could just back up a little bit, I, I, don't, I would not concede that my... I, I, I feel very proud about the policies I have up on my website. When I compare them to other candidates, I think it's just as uh, uh, fulsome as as, uh, as the others. So I, I put a lot of policies out. Yeah, a lot of them are things that you uh, you would expect to see on any conservative leadership candidate page. We all have a firearms policy. We all have a- uh, uh, Basically the same um, probably, firearms policy. Well, you know, I, I've got a few things that others don't. A UN marking protocol is one that I've been That's raising the, the, the warning bell on because it's coming this summer. On the independent schools issue, I got to know a lot of families at the Regina Christian School where we send our our children, and there may be a perception in some circles that independent schools are a place where rich people send their their kids. It's totally not the case. I've got to know parents at faith-based schools, secular schools that offer uh, different approaches to learning, um, schools that have special consideration for students with special needs. A lot of families make a heck of a lot of sacrifices to put their children in a school that, that, gives, them something that, that, that uh, gives them something that they may not feel they would get in, in a public system. And they make a tremendous um, work very hard to be able to do that and make tremendous sacrifices. To me, this independent school tax credit is a recognition of those sacrifices that they make and a recognition of the fact that independent schools and home parents who homeschool provide a huge service to the public systems because those parents that put their children in alternative schooling situations still pay taxes to support the public system, whether it's through property taxes or education taxes at the provincial level. So every student that's not in a public school still has that family paying taxes to support the public system. But now that student's not drawing on those resources. I think the last stat I saw was one in 12 children in Canada go to an independent school. If every single one of those students were put back into the public system starting in September, the public system would be overwhelmed in virtually every province this is a logical extension of the tax credit that parents can receive for post-secondary education and it does it in a way that does not affect funding to the public system it it doesn't it's not like full funding for different types of schools as was proposed in the past in Ontario it's not getting into provincial areas of jurisdiction it's not uh, it's not meddling in, in what provincial departments may uh, may want to proceed with it's just a recognition of the cost that many parents make to put their children in, in these types of educational systems and uh, and makes it a little bit easier for them to do it
0: purists might think that you're interfering in a provincial jurisdiction
1: well I mean then those purists would have to make the case that we shouldn't have tax credits for post-secondary tuition or that uh, the federal government shouldn't provide any transfers to the provinces for health or education because that's that's how our constitution is read so given the fact of where we are today and and the expectation that the federal government does have some roles to play in terms of these types of services i think it's the tidiest way to do it 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 leaves the administration and the decision making to the provincial government it's just directly to the parents. It's a tax credit directly to parents that bypasses all those other questions about jurisdiction.
0: You write that um, you would take the fight to ISIS, uh, to basically to the skies. How would your policy be different than what the liberals are doing?
1: Well, they, they pulled the jets out of the fight, and, and that was...
0: To put boots on the ground, to put well, more boots on the ground.
1: Well, in uh, there's a lot of... Uh, so you would uh, reverse that? Well, there's a lot of... D- there's a lot that you could talk about, you know, is that what was more effective to actually uh, de- de- defeating ISIS? You know, what was it that our allies were, were asking? And I remember during one question period exchange, uh, back when the liberals made the decision, we asked the liberal government to table or provide any evidence that there was any request by any of our NATO allies to pull those jets say please Canada please leave your jets at home please do this other thing I'm convinced that this was a political decision that the Prime Minister made during an election campaign and he felt like he had to do something on the other side so he finds a some type of deployment to say well look we're still we're still over there but I think our jets were doing a good job they're contributing it was meaningful and it was a signal to our allies that we were willing to to take on some of the responsibility and as we're seeing we certainly don't need to do less to fight ISIS and it all comes back to, I, I know the liberals are a big fan of talking about root causes but it seems like on the refugee crisis they're not interested in the root cause because the root cause of the refugee crisis is the civil war and the threat of ISIS and people fleeing you know gas attacks from Assad and ethnic cleansing from ISIS and we need to we need to do everything we can to to destroy the people that are trying to destroy innocent human lives and you know when i've you talk to Syrians who have come to Canada or who are displaced, they, they want to go back. They, they prefer to go home. You know, uh, yes, we can play a role in helping those that don't have a place to go home to, but there aren't there isn't enough capacity in Europe or in North America to, uh, to deal with every single person in that area that's going to be affected by this evil organization. So we should be doing everything we can to destroy them.
0: So you would increase... The basically you would put the jet back, mm-hmm. but not um, descale the level of commitment with the the troops on the ground.
1: I would absolutely start with absolutely putting the jets back in. I think that's uh, that's important. And you know if if. Uh, I- and, and, you know, unlike the Liberals, instead of just making like a political, I would I would absolutely consult with our NATO allies, say, look, are the boots that are on the ground there, are they pr- providing a meaningful role? And if they are, then okay, let's look and see if, if we can do both. I just think that it's very important that we took, we removed a huge aspect of our commitment in combat. We, we, we really scaled down our combat side of things to do this other aspect that the Liberals felt, you know, was enough to, to, to send a signal. So... Why Why did we start the conversation with scaling back something?
0: I want to ask you about the environment. You, like everybody else except for Michael Chong, are opposed to carbon tax. How or do you have an interest in reducing our carbon footprint? And how would you achieve a lowering of greenhouse gas emissions?
1: Um, I am interested in, in reducing uh, all different kinds of emissions. <laughs> uh, I think that one thing that we can acknowledge is that it's good to have voices in the conversation that, that remind us of the responsibility to be good stewards of our land, our water and our air. And that there is a role to, for, for you know, people who are, whose primary concern is the environment to, to drive public policy. What does that, that mean? Well, I guess what I'm saying is, if we didn't have those voices, we might not have made some of the progress that we have made over the past, acid rain, uh, you know, getting rid of lead in gasoline, uh, higher stands for wa- wastewater treatment. So I, I'm, I'm recognizing the contribution to public policy that those whose primary concern is the environment have have played. But I think it's, it's irresponsible to allow them to drive the entire uh, agenda. And I think we have to be very realistic with, first of all, what is Canada's global footprint? What are the practical things we can do to help? And are we being, are we ignoring some solutions that could actually have a, a better impact on global emissions? For example, exporting our clean coal technology and our carbon capture technology to countries like China and India, who are bringing on new coal-powered uh, electricity plants could actually result in fewer tons of GHGs being emitted and be much more effective than a carbon tax and not cost Canadians billions of dollars so uh,
0: you you mean if I'm unpacking this properly and please correct me if I'm not saying this right that because Canada basically is a very small percentage of the global contribution to greenhouse gas emissions Canada should focus more on reducing greenhouse gas emissions elsewhere
1: I guess what I'm saying is that if if option A is a punitive carbon tax that will damage our economy and result in Y tons of, you know, X tons of greenhouse gases being reduced. Option B has us partner with somewhere, another country around the world and not punish ourselves, may not result, but, but, but results in more greenhouse gases being reduced. Why not go after option be. And I think sometimes those on the left almost want to prove that we're willing to damage ourselves, even if it's not the most efficient way to r- reduce emissions, because then, you know, we're showing that we're doing something. And I say, yeah, but that's like if, if the goal is actually reducing CO2 and this way can achieve it, let's look at that. Let's just so I was, was I was
0: right. I explained it properly. <laughs>
1: well, I d- explained it my way. So. <laughs>
0: just want to make sure I understood clearly and correctly. Um,
1: I, I talked about showing Canadians where they purchase their energy from. With You did? I did, yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about that? You want
0: to build yeah. the energy east pipeline. You mm-hmm. want to make sure that Canadians are aware of where um, the oil comes from. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's a big part of it. I think there are a lot of motorists in Ontario and Quebec and Atlantic Canada that may not realize that a significant percentage of the gasoline they buy comes from countries like Saudi Arabia, Algeria, the United States. And when we have these conversations around approving Energy East, there are a lot of politicians at the provincial or municipal level that that try to block it. And if their constituents if the grassroots people say, hey, wait a minute, I support Energy East because I don't want to buy a barrel of oil from Saudi Arabia with a terrible human rights record with zero concern for environmental regulations with much less labor standards. And we've got out of work Canadians in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So I want Energy East. and I think that will help build the pressure up. To, to get these types of things approved i can't go through a walmart or a, a home depot without seeing where everything is made made in china made in canada made in mexico made wherever so my my idea would be let's start with that let's when you fill up your tank at the pumps the national energy board tracks this data we can have a little display that says in the last three months 65 percent of the oil used in in this region came from these three countries or these four countries and make Canadians aware of the fact that we're not energy self-sufficient in a country that exports Oil.
0: Is it fair to say that you're running basically on the continuation of Stephen Harper's agenda?
1: I think it's fair to say that Stephen Harper got a lot of things right, and and in some ways he made the a lot of tough things look easy, and maybe some easy things look tough. And and um, being able to find the common ground between all the different kinds of conservatives was something that I think maybe some of us took for granted. And I guess what separates me from some of the other candidates is. I am not going to bring impose a personal ideology that I know is going to be very divisive in our own caucus. Because I believe that there's so much more we agree on, there's so much more common ground that we have between social conservatives, between fiscal conservatives, between economic libertarians, between foreign affairs policy conservatives. So let's focus on those things, let's tick off some boxes from the list of things we agree on, rather than have a massive divisive fight within our own caucus. Started by the leader, it doesn't make sense to me that a leader would come into caucus one morning and say, "Here's a bill that a third, twenty percent, half of our caucus doesn't support." But you mean like uh,
0: on anti-abortion, or
1: supply management, or on uh, you know aspects of the of of social, you know what I mean? Like like there are many different issues that that it's important to recognize that a leader can't this is not a presidential system we're not electing someone who has a uh, who's gonna impose their personal view on things we're looking at someone who can take the party policy that our members have developed that our caucus has worked on and go pitch that to Canadians and then implement them when we win in 2019 and there's a risk in a leadership campaign to focus on To propose things that will not go over well in the general election, but that will speak to conservative members.
0: You mean mobilize certain parts of the conservative yes. family, such as libertarians with Max Bernier, yeah, or, you know. anti-immigrants with Kelly Leach, and the uh, anti-abortion social conservatives with um, Pierre Lemieux and Brad Rost.
1: There are a lot of issues that uh, that can elicit a very powerful positive response from elements of our conservative membership. But if we can't stay together, what's the point? Um, there is a very, you know, uh, I, I, I don't believe that the Canadian mainstream public is libertarian. I, I, I don't get the sense that that's what was missing in the last election. <laughs> um, there are, uh, you know, even in Alberta, a, a, a party that had a more libertarian message, you know, didn't win the last election. So I don't know, it might feel, it might, it might resonate with a lot of Conservative members to have a really radical libertarian message a very radical uh, f- uh, free market uh, ec- economy message. Um, or But is that the best thing to do? Or is the best thing to do is say, okay, two libertarians in the party, what aspects of it that you're looking for would also resonate with mainstream Canadians, and let's start with those, so scaling back the size of government, deregulating certain areas absolutely those are messages that we can sell as conservatives that we can get mainstream Canadians to, to buy into
0: so you'll be but like the bargainer
1: i think i I think I would be the types of the type of person that could keep everyone together and focus on those things I think in a positive way that you know i I grew up in the reform party it was you know, Reform Party policy meetings were fantastic. We had a lot of great ideas and people enjoyed them and and fought passionately over different aspects of democratic reform or, or public policy in different areas. But it doesn't matter if we have a divided party that loses election after election after election. And, and that was a lesson we learned when we got together. And I don't. it's almost frustrating to me during this leadership race that that almost seems to be taken for granted, that very, uh, how do I put this, it's not a given that we're just going to always be, you know, one united voice on the the center right of politics, it's not a given, we have to be very, very thoughtful of how we approach these issues, we have to make sure that every kind of conservative feels that they have a home, but we also have to make sure that we're keeping everyone in the tent enough that we're united and that we can, and we have something to offer mainstream Canadians. You know in in, uh, in the next election, so my proposal is to take the very best of our policies, the the types of policies that all different conservatives can be excited about, present those to Canadians in a positive way that can understand how it's conservative solutions that actually address their concerns, and start implementing our agenda in 2019 after winning.:
0: Are you worried that there are candidates who would create such division that there would be like a breakaway of the Conservative Party? again I don't like want to be a I recreation don't, you know, like don't want to be alarmist I
1: don't want to be fear fearmonger you know I don't want to say like if this person wins then you know we're going to have this problem but I would just urge members to really reflect on the fact that keeping a diverse group of conservatives from diverse backgrounds in a country as diverse as Canada is not simple and it's not just about uh, you know who can be the most pure on any given policy matter it's who can take the best of those policies and, and pitch them in a way that resonates with Canadians? And that's what I'm offering. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I had a friend of mine over for a beer, and we were talking about these, these types of ideas. And I, I asked him a question. I said, do you want to get somebody off of welfare? And he said, of course I do. I'm conservative. I said, okay, well, why? What motivates you? what's your intention? What drives you to get somebody off welfare? And he said, well, I'm sick and tired of me working hard while they sit at home and do nothing. And I said, okay, if that's your message, if you put that on a brochure, what percentage of Canadians are you speaking to? Who, what percentage finds that a real powerful resonating message? Absolutely. There are a lot of conservatives that that's all it takes. Yes, get them off welfare. I'm sick of paying for them. I shouldn't have to. Now take the same goal. Now start talking about breaking the cycle of dependency, talk about integrating someone into the workforce, the the pride of home ownership. Now we're showing an aspirational side that we will get everyone who just wants less people on welfare. But now we have a chance of getting a broader audience, more people to say, yeah, I I like that, we should be doing that. There are a lot of voters that don't care about intentions and motivations. They just want results, so they want lower taxes, they want less people on welfare, they want... And uh, what I'm saying is that we can get those types of people to vote for us because our policies do get results, but we have to have a leader that can pitch them in a way that shows that there's another side to conservatives, that we are just as compassionate, that we have just as much concern for our fellow citizens. We just have to lead with that because the Liberals are so good at, at the flip side of that, right? Like there's Nobody doubts that they care. You know, they come to a big city, they announce a homelessness strategy. We all believe that they care about homeless people. Doesn't matter how many homes they actually build, or if it's the best way of doing it. And I th- I'm saying, let's flip it around. Let's show Canadians what motivates us: genuine concern, real compassion, um, with policies that actually get results. It's the misplaced compassion that we always seem to lose out on. So, the conversation around illegal migrants coming over the border, uh, the left is very good at showing compassion for those people who've just trudged through the snow, and um, and um, uh, you know, risking risking life and limb to come to Canada. But there's no compassion for the tens of thousands of people waiting in a refugee camp, playing by the rules, facing real persecution. If they left the camp, they very well might be killed. Nobody's coming in over the border because they're being persecuted in North Dakota or Maine. So we have to show that side of ourselves that we have compassion when it comes to refugee but just compassion for people who are actually in danger and actually need to be taken care of and go through this and are waiting their turn and doing everything properly
0: you're 37 yes you've been involved in politics since you were 25
1: I was first elected at 25 I've been involved for a long time it's
0: true you worked on the hill you worked in LLO you worked in a constituency office in Regina Um, but you've never been a cabinet minister you were speaker of the House of Commons um, when most of your colleagues had cabinet experience, what experience do you think you have um, that would make you well suited for this job?
1: Well, first of all, uh, I have s- had private sector experience as insurance broker for before I got elected. and, Six and, and months, being and no be- not longer than that. <laughs> and being, <laughs> how long? <laughs> I have to go back and look. Um, and I worked all the way through high school, at university, put myself, paid my tuition, and. and uh, in the Are workforce. you counting
0: the beers you sold at the football stadium? No,
1: I, I, it's look. There is no every work is honest work, and I worked I've worked in restaurants to pay tuition. I worked in uh, uh, where else? I've. Uh,
0: this is my way of <laughs> asking you what your jobs were as a child. <laughs>
1: um, and being speaker is, in a lot of respects, on the same level as being a cabinet minister. It's just separated from cabinet, executive level of authority, and I had to deal with a lot of tricky issues, not just managing very polarizing actors in the house, you know, Stephen Harper, Thomas Mulcair. Uh, that was really tricky for a lot of years, managing that. Also, overseeing the precinct, dealing with the terrorist attack in, uh, in 2014, imp- you know, driving the merger of the security forces, dealing with all the fallout from that. There, were, I was tried and tested a lot. Doesn't get the same attention that cabinet ministers get, because nobody really... You know there's not a lot of uh,
0: you don't hold press conferences. yeah,
1: exactly. And a lot of my victories go unnoticed because a sp- when a speaker' is really successful, it doesn't spill over to the House of Commons. And I was able to diffuse a lot of situations that nobody will ever know about because behind behind the scenes, you know we worked you can tell things me. <laughs> I have to respect the confidences of those involved. but I'm very proud of my time as speaker and it taught me a ton. It, it, it really did, and I think it gave me some leadership capabilities I didn't have before.
0: What do you think your biggest accomplishment as Speaker was?
1: I think it was the, b- the backbench MP ruling, the, the rights of individual MPs to to speak in the House without going through party whips. This uh, is Mark Lora's yep. privilege,
0: yep. question of privilege, which basically he he was saying that his rights as a member of Parliament had been denied because uh, he had been denied a speaking yeah. spot.
1: Yeah, I think my ruling was able to not impose my personal view on how the House of Commons should operate, respecting the tradition that the Speaker is a servant of the House and that there is some importance of having parties work together and, and have some kind of caucus coordination, but also ultimately saying at the end of the day we're here because voters sent us here and we don't have to ask permission from whips or party leaders and if a member stands to get recognized, I will recognize him eventually. It doesn't mean every time because there's other things at play, but it really, I think, put some leverage back in the hands of individual MPs from all parties to make sure their whips know that you know, they, c- they can be asked to participate in a caucus arrangement, but that that's a voluntary decision that they make.
0: Do you think that the MPs, did you expect the MPs to stand up more often than they did? Because it seems like it lasted two days and uh, then but, we were back to normal.
1: But see, this is the thing. I think what happened was that it went back to normal because now the whips knew that they individual MPs had leverage so rather than trying to say well you can't say that or I I think it actually worked perfectly because it it gave that leverage back to MPs but MPs usually ultimately are team players and want to work in a caucus dynamic i think it shifted that internally that you would never see so even though they went back to the list very quickly i think it freed up what members were able to speak about or the rotation or a more equitable distribution of speaking slots or whatever it was we'll never know in each caucus it might have gone differently but i wasn't surprised at all i i I thought that for sure there'd be a little flare-up and then. Caucuses would settle and, and re, reorient how they were handling things.
0: Okay, so this is going to be my last question um, on this issue because you've been a big fan of the Westminster system and Parliament for some time. You were like the assistant uh, speaker, then you were the deputy speaker. Um, the Liberals have introduced a bunch of reforms, or they've suggested a bunch of reforms they want to see to Parliament. How do you feel about the idea of a prime minister's question period, and what could we expect from Andrew Shear as prime minister when it comes to the relationship with the House of Commons?
1: I, I won't get into all the specifics because honestly, I haven't been involved in the procedure in House Affairs, so I don't know every aspect of the proposal. But I will say this: I what I what I like about the British system is that ministers and the prime minister feel really tied to the House, like they really do pay the House the respect that that it deserves. So, you know, the, the Prime Minister uh, will, will make more statements in the House of Commons there that answer more questions over a longer period of time when it comes to specific issues. Theresa May was in the House the other day on Brexit, you know, answering questions for, for a long period of time, doing the, the courtesy to the House of being, being there. I, I was always inspired by Jason Kenney when he had a bill uh, that he was minister, as minister he was responsible for, he would be in the house for second reading debates for the most of the debate, you know, and he would tell his staff if, for departmental meetings, I can't go to a departmental meeting because my bill is before the house. That's, that's what we should have. We should have that system where cabinet views the house as that, that, that uh, important place that, that we owe our respect to.
0: So would you just want to stand up for one day and answer questions like in Britain?
1: <laughs> and one thing I'm very conscious, conscious of is not to cherry pick and say, oh, well, they do that there, so let's do that here. Yeah, we could do a lot of things that they do over there. Let's not just pick one or two. Let's, let's have a thoughtful conversation about if the ultimate goal is having the government be more accountable then I think we can uh, we can find a lot of ways to improve it. If the ultimate goal is to make things easier on the government and make it more convenient, then I'm not interested in that conversation. And I wouldn't be as prime minister. I, 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 I would give the House the respect that it's not my job to make... I shouldn't ask the House to make things more convenient for me as prime minister. The prime minister should be finding ways to make the, the government more accountable to the House.
0: Okay, I know we have to run, so okay. thanks very Sorry.
1: much. Sorry to cut this short.
0: That was my chat with Andrew Shear during the Tory leadership campaign. He is now, of course, the new Conservative Party leader. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of Follow-Up, a HuffPose Canada politics podcast. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow-Up is produced by Xian Lum and myself. Our technical producer is Stephanie Werner. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great week.